Welcome to School of Movies. There will be blood. I don't know why that was Agent Smith. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And And welcome welcome to to School of Movies. (laughs) There will be blood. This is a commission show backed by Parker. It's also our first ever main event episode on a Paul Thomas Anderson film. He is one of my favorite directors. I believe I've talked about Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza in our Patreon after school clubs. And I am looking forward to us covering more in future as main events, including Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and most of all, 1970s through 80s San Fernando Valley pornography dynasty, Boogie Nights. For this show, I will be calling him P.T., so as not to confuse him with another of my all-time favourite directors, Wes Anderson of the Royal Tenenbaums and the Grand Budapest Hotel, or indeed the occasionally okay-ish Paul Thomas Anderson. No, nope. Paul W.S. Anderson. Oh, bollocks! I actually confused <laughs> him in my life. <laughs> it happened already. Okay, yeah, you see, like, you're Anderson, you're Anderson, and you're Anderson need to be told apart. So we've got P.T., Wes Anderson, and what should we, what should we call Paul W.S.? Puss. Puss, yeah, okay. <laughs> of the Resident Evils, Mortal Kombat, and Event Horizon. And possibly the reason that you did an Agent Smith voice was because you were also including Thomas Anderson of The Matrix. Mr. Anderson. <laughs> There Will Be Blood gushed forth in 2007, written by P.T. and very loosely based on a 1927 book simply entitled Oil! with an exclamation mark, written by Upton Sinclair. There Will Be Blood won at the Oscars, the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes, the Screen Actors Guild, the New York City Film Critics Circle, the Berlin Film Festival, and the Irish Film and Television Academy. It is considered to be one of the greatest films of the 21st century so far. It is a long, hard, yet engrossing watch. Also, the most two recent two times we've watched it, it flies by. It's long, but it's not slow. Does that make any sense? Or it is slow, but, like, it's not boring. It's thoughtful. It's not slow. There's always something going on on screen. Yeah. Even though the, the, the dialogue doesn't necessarily flow thick and fast, but there is always something to look at, whether that be the scenery of the background, the scenery of Daniel Day-Lewis's face, mm. the scenery of, of the settings and the costumes. One of P.T.'s abilities is he has a driving force behind his films. Not all of them. Some of them, like The Master and Inherent Vice, kind of fell flat for me. Uh, and I'm not massively fan of his uh, original Hard Eight, which was taken away from him at the time by the studio. He was originally going to call it Sydney, and he doesn't even like that. Mm. Uh, but he has uh, he has an engrossing way of drawing you in and holding you. The actual what happens in There Will Be Blood, and it's very much iterating on a theme. It's the same thing repeatedly. So why don't we get? bored of it. And I'm sure there are people who watched it and were in fact bored of it or would watch it and would be bored. But it is the saga of the American dream lived out by a single man and witnessed by those around him. 
but not in an uplifting or inspiring way, in a purposefully critical way, highlighting how in order to achieve this rags to obscene riches transformation, the lying to and exploiting of average everyday Americans is downright essential. It is a grimy dive into the empty, angry heart of a horrendous, man-shaped creature. And Daniel Day-Lewis has given some exceptional performances throughout his career. My Left Foot, Last of the Mohicans, Gangs of New York, Lincoln, and the aforementioned Phantom Thread with P.T. But this is probably the most darkly, quietly, insidiously intense. I'd say Bill the Butcher from Gangs of New York is also incredibly intense, but he's a cartoon. So if you're ready, folks... Let us take you down under the ground to start this story of a ragged prospector looking for silver in California, 1898. So it opens with this lengthy, wordless, prospecting piece. It's you just it's just visual storytelling of this old looking guy. He's actually at his youngest at this point in the film, but he, he looks like a grizzled old 1830s prospector, scratching at the rock deep underground, trying to find this and that, and then comes clattering down and falls and breaks his leg. It's this kind of uh, uh, crucible he, he recovers a, a nugget of silver in the doing of that. It's like he's bled for this piece of land already, so he is damned if he's ever going to stop trying to wrench stuff out of this land. He, like, we, we cut to him, like, sort of down the, sh uh, the shaft going, and uh, at this point I was like, hang on, is that Daniel Day-Lewis, or is that Daniel Day-Lewis's partner whose son he adopts because he's unrecognisable? We don't actually see him in full... Daniel Plainview mode until a time lapse. He's able to sort of push through this initial injury and get other people to this place whereby eventually oil is discovered underneath the silver and gold. There are many different flavours of terrible person in the world <laughs> and Daniel Plainview is maybe the first character I've seen whose arc is essentially a magical mystery tour of all of them. Ah. But when it comes down to it, and, I, and I, as we go through it, I will sort of highlight what particular brand of shit yeah. he's being. We've done shits, moment. now to bastards. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Bastards from a basket. Um, but fundamentally, what Daniel is, and because we don't know anything about him before this, we mm. don't know whether this is the transformation point or whether he's always been this way and it's just been leading to this, he is a vampire. Hmm. He is, and, and there's, there is an irony in him seeking silver initially, because while it's not that's a universal thing, thing that's supposed to silver kill is one of the things that often is, is thought to kill vampires. But the... You might say that's werewolves, but ultimately the monsters that became separated out into werewolves and vampires all began with these superstitions. Yeah, the, the idea is that silver is pure and reflective and, and representative of the moon, and those are things that people associate with nighttime monsters. <laughs> the, the, he, he delves too greedily and too deep, fundamentally, and something turns him into this creature that thirsts 
for the blood of the land. Mm. And he will not let go of that pursuit. And it's a violent, penetrative act that keeps happening. Yeah. And it seems like every oil well gets christened with blood as a calamity occurs. Something horrible falls down the shaft and someone gets hit in the head and blood splatters into the mud and oil as it seeps through the earth's crust. Yeah, and there's, there's... There are layers to the title for me, which, again, I will go into some of them later, but one of the particular ones that popped into my head was the protest slogan that people used whenever there was some kind of war going on in a country where oil was abundant and the people who were essentially there to help had business interests and getting the oil was dependent on them managing the conflict in that area. Yeah. And that phrase was no blood for oil. They used it in during the 1991 uh, Gulf conflict. They used it again in 2003. And it's been used in other places as well. And ultimately, Daniel repeatedly trades blood for oil. Yeah. Uh, also, absolutely worth noting, Johnny Greenwood as a major component of this film. Uh, he of Radiohead performed the score for this. It is this screeching, discordant, thumping, driving, hellish cacophony that waxes and wanes and just it feels like cats being scraped against a chalkboard as you go. But uh, in combination with the imagery, the opening, especially it being wordless, most reminds me of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's got that mm. kind of, yeah. and in the beginning, there was oil. Yeah. He may as well batter someone's head in with an oil pump. Yeah, it's, it's horror. It is a horror soundtrack, a horror score. But it's, it's not the horror of a thing getting you. It's the horror of being the thing that gets other people. The isolation, the... Um, what starts as kind of a driving self-sufficiency, and I think this is the root of where this is is linked to the American dream but has branched out into the American nightmare, is that it starts with a kernel of, I can't rely on anyone around me because there is no one around me. The problem is that it beca- that becomes uh, an adaptive coping mechanism that is so rigid and unchanging that as the world moves on and people do start to be around you, you push them all away. The uh, transformative moment uh, of uh, him becoming rich from just this guy wearing uh, uh, ragged cloth is one of the workers that he hires to work on the shaft uh, is hit in the head by falling uh, tools and dies, leaving him with a free baby. Uh, The baby uh, is referred to as HW throughout this, and the opening sequence, and there's little repeated moments throughout the film, show Daniel being quite fond of the baby. He doesn't immediately uh, go, oh, what's this disgusting thing? Like, uh, You can see why, with his fairly gentle, somewhat doting behaviour of this kid, he gives him attention as well, that the kid cares about him. Does that make sense? It does. And it is actually... It, it is so common as to be almost universal that 
children will bond with their caregivers incredibly strongly, even if they are abusive, that a love will form between them, even if from the outside it doesn't look like that love is deserved. And part of that, again, is a coping mechanism, because as a child you are so dependent on the people who look after you, if you reject them, you are well and truly fucked. So HW really has no choice. But from Daniel's um, angle, I think part of it is that if you, if you look at when HW gets a little bit older, the things he's trying to teach him, it's the kind of love that a narcissist has for their child in the, I can create a small replica of me in you, and therefore I can love the part of you that replicates me. But that's all. That's where the boundary will end. But to HW, that's love and that's his day-to-day, -day, so he grows to care for the man. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> we cut forward from 1898 to 1911, and Daniel Plainview is now seemingly the man he wants to be. We see him holding court in front of a crowd of unseen townspeople who have clearly come across oil. Ladies and gentlemen, I've travelled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. That well is now flowing at 2,000 barrels and it's paying me an income of $5,000 a week. I have two others drilling and I have 16 producing at Antelope, so... Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Now, you have a great chance here. Bear in mind, you can lose it all if you're not careful. Out of all men that beg for a chance to drill your lots, maybe one in 20 will be oil men. The rest will be speculators. That's men trying to get between you and the oil men to get some of the money that ought by rights come to you. Even if you find one that has money and means to drill, he'll maybe know nothing about drilling. He'll have to hire the job out on contract, and then you're depending on a contractor will rush the job through so he can get another contract just as quick as he can. This is the way that this works. Well, what is your offer? We're, we're wasting yes. time. Yes. Please. I do my own drilling. And the men that work for me work for me, and they are men I know. I make it my business to be there and to see their work. I don't lose my tools in the hole and spend months fishing for them. I don't botch the cementing off and let water in the hole and ruin the whole lease. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. We offer you the bond of family that very few oil men can understand. I'm fixed like no other company in this field, and that's because my Coyote Hills well has just come in. I have a string of tools all ready to put to work. I can load a rig onto trucks and have them here in a week. I have business connections so I can get the lumber for the derrick such Things go by friendship in a rush like this. And this is why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. So he focuses on, I'm a family man. This is a, a family business. My son H.W. and I, we, we travel from place to place and I, I have to go and see about my oil businesses, but he gets everybody with FOMO. Yes. Fear yeah. of missing out. Yeah. There's also moments here when you can really feel him selling the monorail. Yeah. 
I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook. This is what I did, and it put them on the map, you see. But he's assertive, he's confident. I, I noted down that he looks like an evil Tom Selleck. As in, Tom Selleck always seemed to be not so much like super confident, but that, that moustache put him in charge, yeah. even if there were people who were arguing with him as Magnum P.I. or something. Absolutely. It, it, it's a moustache that immediately makes you look more grown up mm. than everybody else in the room, and therefore people who have any kind of self-doubt will naturally turn to you for leadership. But this, this is the scene that really shows the evolution of Daniel from scavenger which is who he is to begin with to con man and this is the first transition between one kind of shit to another kind of shit he is he is not selling the oil but he is selling the means to get the oil neglecting to mention to them that the person who's going to walk away from this with the biggest slice of the pie is obviously him yeah it's uh, th this is the grift that we see time and time again. It's a, a routine for him. Yeah. Like he he relies on. So, uh, that's the thing. He relies on each thread of this particular routine. So whenever a part of the thread of the routine is threatened by somebody outside, he goes to shit. Yes, he does. Like, he doesn't immediately break yes. like... No, but he freaks out. Like, but, like, he doesn't break in a kind of losing control of the scenario way, mm. at least on a superficial level, but he becomes hyper-aggressive. Yeah, yeah. You can see this starting to Twitch. happen as, he, as mm. he sort of tries to forcibly pull things back on track. <laughs> And yeah, uh, he does a lot of eye acting where you can tell what Plainview's thinking while everybody starts shouting and he's kind of like, you know, his eyes dart around the place. Mm. But he doesn't have that kind of like seemingly obvious, I've got them now glimmer no. in there. No, he's, he's not like, you know, Kevin in The Devil's Advocate, mm. smile from a jury, he lives for that arrogant feeling of being able to, to just, ooh, that cold courtroom just... Giving itself over to you, bending to your strength. Dude, there's better ways. <laughs> He's not vain in that same way. No, no. And the the, the thing about the walking It's more that he's methodical moment. and has his routine. Yeah. And then every time somebody speaks up, they're interrupting. Yeah. But the thing about the walking away moment is that it's it's kind of a... It's a, it's a knife edge moment because he is, A, this is part of the routine. He walks away to put them on the back foot and make mm -hmm. it so that they're coming after him. Mm -hmm. But B, he's walking away because that shows himself he doesn't need them. Ultimately, if they do decide not to follow him, he will just keep walking. Mm -hmm. There's an element of, I have always depended on the stupidity of strangers. Like, if people have any understanding or knowledge that surpasses his. Like you said, this routine has so many threads. If any of them can be disrupted by somebody who is more knowing than him on that particular element, the whole thing falls down like a house of cards. Daniel Day-Lewis has a fairly incredible face. He looks like a, a sculpted action figure. Uh, but if you look at, like, his moustache goes to here, and then the, there's these sort of slightly curved lines that bend down to his incredibly chiselled lantern jaw. It's this commanding jaw, uh, and it, it reminds me of uh, how Philip Pullman described Lord Asriel. Mm. Lord Asriel was a tall man with powerful shoulders, a fierce dark face, and eyes that seemed to flash and glitter with savage laughter. It was a face to be dominated by, or to fight never a face to patronize or pity. All his movements were large and perfectly balanced, like those of a wild animal, 
and when he appeared in a room like this, he seemed a wild animal held in a cage too small for it. Which is ironic, because he is a pitiable wretch of a man, but your pity only extends so far, and he absolutely makes sure, by the end, that you aren't going to give him any. Well, that's the thing. All the things he's done that we see that cause him to be pitiable are entirely of his own making. Oh, yeah. And at that point, my sympathy kind of gets suspended a little bit. If We, we feel knew... sorry for Dracula, but not him. Well, indeed. If, we'd, if we knew more of where he came from and knew that the path to this point was done by events out of his control, then maybe. But, but. what we have to work with, it's like, you brought this on yourself. He gets a visit from Paul Dano, who uh, I t we talked about uh, during The Batman, and uh, he is he's perfectly cast in this role, these roles. We don't see too much of him here, but he, he, fit, he pretty much just points Daniel towards a large area of land presided over by the ranch of his father. And when Daniel goes there, he and H.W. go quail hunting and find... <laughs> yeah in inverted commas, find the oil miraculously. A a he sits down with HW and talks about what they're going to do. And uh, the boy asks, you know, how much are we going to pay them? And he says, we aren't going to pay oil prices, we'll pay quail prices. And HW looks uncomfortable. And that informs on his character the whole way through the film. This kid has got a soul. This kid has got a conscience. He's compassionate. He cares about people. And he learned none of that from Daniel Plainview. Mm. Like, this movie may as well be called It's Nature, Not Nurture. <laughs> It, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a blend of the two. Ultimately, H.W. does do some things further down the line. That, but uh, that, he should be a sociopath. He should yeah. be framed into a sociopath by this guy. The, but, the but like, no, he's uh, Cedric, Cyril Sneer's son. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, From the raccoons, folks. Yeah, ultimately, H.W. has not only been exposed to Daniel. If he had been brought up by Daniel in a truly isolated environment with no contact with any other human beings, then potentially he would have developed only what Daniel taught him. Mm. But he's been surrounded by uh, Daniel's partner, Kieran Hines. He's been surrounded by... That's all a boy's answer. You're lying. He's observed all of the people from town to town that they go to and presumably has seen goodness and variety in how they've responded to the situations. And while he might not necessarily have consciously developed any feelings about those situations, it all goes in. Kids are sponges. They're observers. They take all of this stuff in. And they, yes, they formulate this combination of, of influences into what their character and personality will become, combined with whatever internal stuff they've got going on, which is nature. Crucially, though, Daniel believes it's blood, not water. Daniel believes that H.W. isn't his son because he's not of him. He is not of his flesh. Yes, indeed. And he's fixated on the blood. He was really fixated on the blood. And the idea that the... This the, comes into play later, obviously. The, um, yeah, the, the relative loneliness and isolation that he feels within the world is to do with him being completely cut off from any kind of family. And he, as we will discuss later, attempts to make connections that replicate that 
and grabs at any threads of that that come within his grasp. But because he prioritises that and rejects any other kind of connections, he ends up digging his own hole. Mm. So uh, Paul Dano's Eli uh, catches on to the fact that they're, they're laying claim to the land at quail prices. His routine is to... Daniel's routine is to always lie and hide the truth about what the land is potentially worth. He will tell people that it's worth $3 when it's actually worth $300. Mm, yeah. Uh, also, he's taking a slightly different tack with this family. He's not offering to drill for them like he did with the township. Mm. He just wants to buy the land up yes. from underneath. Them. His cover story is HW needs the fresh air and the quail hunting. The doctors say that. So, mm. uh, But Eli wants... A church. Eli wants $10,000 for a church. And Eli is a little shit. This is Paul Dano. Oh, Paul Dano playing a little shit. Must be Tuesday. It's perfect for him. I've already played that clip in The Batman, but I'm going to play it here as well because it is, it's, it's exemplary of a different strand of American con man. The televangelist, the person who says, send me all your money, the more money you send, the more likely it will be that you get to sit on God's right hand. He, they, those men very specifically, especially in the 80s and 90s on TV, would send out the word to people who were kind of just at home and had access to the phone and their credit card and wanted to go to heaven. Here, he's not actually trying to get money directly out of people, but his congregation give him all the power he absolutely craves. He is on fire when he can shriek and gibber and moan and tell people that he has superpowers because he's connected to the Lord. Yeah. And he knows he's a con man. He tells Daniel later. You have arthritis, don't you? Yes, I do. Yes, the devil is in your hands and I will fuck it out. No, I will not cast this ghost out with a fever. For the new spirit inside me has shown me I have a new way to communicate. It is a gentle whisper. Get out of here, ghost. Get out of here, ghost. Get out. Get out of here, ghost. Get out of here, ghost. Get out of here, ghost. Get out of here. Don't you dare turn around and come back. For if you do, all the armies of my boots will kick you in the teeth. And you will be cast up and thrown in the dirt and thrust back to perdition. And as long as I have teeth, I will bite you. And if I have no teeth, I will gum you. And as long as I have fish, I will bash you. Now get out of your It's not clear what Eli thinks of people, but he certainly wants to be worshipped. 
He has a lot in common with Daniel that is not superficially apparent, but they are both vampires. Yeah. And you're right, there is a there is a version of a televangelist who is vampiric in the same way that Daniel is, where it's all about material wealth, and the more they get into it, the more dependent on that material wealth they become. There will never be enough for them. And if there's even a hint that that stream of wealth is starting to ebb away, they become desperate. With Eli, it's more, as you say, it's more about the power and the control and that sense of being able to have these people hang off his every word. And again, believe that he can achieve miracles. His That big screaming session is, I'm going to do away with this lady, this old woman's arthritis. Mm. Old women develop arthritis. It's what happens. They do. Claiming that you can do away with it by throwing an invisible ghost out of your little church is... Being a con man. Indeed. What you could do, though, is find us some anti-inflammatory herbs. It wouldn't cure it, but it would help. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we, we miss a big chunk of Eli's journey because this is not his story. But it becomes apparent further down the line <clears throat> that this stairway to a materialistic, um, popularity-driven life mm. continues and ultimately ends up culminating in the ebbing away of that and him becoming desperate. Yeah. Uh, I, I see Eli as a second potential son to Daniel. Oh, absolutely. One that he's in constant competition with. It's kind of a passive-aggressive competition in that Eli insists that he be uh, allowed to perform a blessing. Mm. To consecrate the new oil well ground. And he just talks and talks at Daniel until Daniel says, fine, thank you, I'm glad that we've had this meeting, now fuck off. But the actual, when the blessing comes, he sends H.W. up to the pump and very deliberately, you know, shapes his words around, you know, it's going to be about you people. And Eli's standing at the front expectantly, waiting for his moment to snag the entire crowd. But he's in constant competition with Daniel and Daniel won't give it to him. Daniel uses his exact words, making it very apparent that he is not going to call on Eli to come and deliver the, um, the blessing. The relationship between them, Eli keeps keeps insisting we are brothers. Daniel keeps insisting with his every word, act and gesture, no, we're fucking not. Do you hear <laughs> me, Eli, you me. boy? Uh, yes, I think you, you're right in that there's more of a, a, a father-son, I can't call it a bond, <laughs> a father-son... Arrangement? Arrangement <laughs> between them. Well, Eli's but, horribly disappointed with his own father, whom yeah. he slaps around later. Absolutely. Who, but, by the way, also beats his sister, whose name is Mary, Mary and is a sweet little girl, and put a, put a pin in Mary, not literally, just, like, pop her up on the shelf and wait, because she's actually really important to the story in, in quite a significant capacity, but gets nothing to do for most of the film. Yeah. She's just sort of there in the background. But specifically, Daniel, from the sounds of it, tells her father, stop beating this child, and, and thus it stops happening. Mm. A true miracle. Yes, indeed. But yeah, the uh, Eli is another tick in the box of examples where Daniel is presented with a potential 
family-like relationship which he rejects because it is not a, a literal family relationship. The thing that he does when he doesn't want to engage with people is he pays them off. And the irony is he has promised Eli something, $5,000 for the church. Eli wanted 10, but Daniel haggled him down to five. five. Did he ever give it to him? No, and yeah. that's the thing. Paul, who's the person who came to him and said the oil is there, Daniel pays him off and he disappears, never to be seen again. This is Eli's he twin could brother. Quite easily. Sir, not appearing in this film <laughs> oh, after indeed. this scene. He could quite easily have done the same thing with Eli, give him his $5,000, he'll shut the fuck up. Mm. But he doesn't. Well, it's, it's mainly because Eli makes it plain he's not going anywhere. If, if Daniel starts this well here, mm. he's going to have the church in constant competition with him. So yeah. Daniel decides to just hold this 5,000 clearly over his head. Right. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And Eli's pathetic mewling... In, in Daniel's as, head, that would make sense. Yeah, uh, he, he's hanging on his leg, but ultimately Daniel considers him to be uh, like not a worthy opponent, but maybe the only person who's presenting him with any kind of friction. Mm, yeah. I don't think Daniel considers anybody to be a worthy opponent. Yeah. There's another calamity. Uh, another man gets struck in the head while smoking down an oil well. And the immediate fire geyser that you'd imagine doesn't happen for a bit. It then happens. I realise that a lot of people sort of have this thing about it's health and safety gone mad. You have to understand what they started with was a level of stupidity so low <laughs> it was at the centre of the earth. Mm. But this fire geyser is, is one of those sort of you know, big cinematic moments where you can kind of watch the earth is bleeding, glowing orange blood into the night sky as it explodes outwards. Almost like the oil remembers being dinosaurs in this diabolical, violent display of... The oil cannot simply be quietly extracted and then utilised without repercussions. Yeah, well, what happens is they hit a gas pocket and initially there is an explosion which injures HW and kills somebody else. And Daniel, while he's racing to, to get HW away from the, the scenario, is yelling at everybody, put the fires out, because at this point he knows there's going to be an explosion. He is then faced with a choice where he can either stay with his clearly hurt and terrified son or he can turn his attention to trying to stop the, the um, rig going up. Mm -hmm. And you can see, the, the and PT frames this beautifully, you can see the moment where he makes the choice. He's trying to communicate with HW and initially it looks like all his focus is on the kid and he's while he's yelling instructions to other people, he is kind of ignoring the potential danger with the oil. He's focusing on the child. He's kind of realising that he's not going to get an immediate response because HW can't hear him. He has had his hearing destroyed. Yeah, the explosion has, has effectively wrecked his eardrums. And when Daniel does not get the immediate feedback from HW that he wants, instead of continuing to try and reach him and comfort him and, and help him, that's when he starts to kind of turn and check and eventually he lets go of him and says, I'll be right back, but he can't hear him and runs away. This is the first moment 
there's a there's a scene later on that really emphasizes this idea that he abandons HW. He does it repeatedly. I, th I think there's a power of three thing going on, but this is definitely the first one. He lets go of him, he is traumatised, and he lets go of him to go and deal with this oil well, which he fails to do because it goes up in flames anyway. But that doesn't matter because in his words, he's still got the ocean of oil he wanted. Absolutely. So let it go. If you've got the ocean of oil that you were after, why is this important over your terrified child? He said at the beginning, I had to go and see about my oil well. You always do, Daniel. Yeah. Then follows the most needlessly distressing ear inspection I've ever seen. I don't even know why it was framed like this. It's just to illustrate how inhuman Daniel is. After spending a night of clasping this kid who's going, mm, uh, uh, and telling him to shush, uh, as the kid sort of experiments with noises. Hear. Yeah. That's the other thing. The boy is deaf. At no point, at no point, does Daniel attempt to communicate with him non-verbally or in a way that is physically expressive. He just tells him in English without gesturing over and over again. It's astonishing how little of a step he makes to meet this boy halfway. Quite the contrary, in fact. He repeatedly will talk to HW while looking away from him. Yeah. Removing any sense that the child might be able to, to sort of comprehend or respond. He will, as you say, he'll, he'll speak to him from behind him and then get cross when he doesn't understand. And he keeps doing this over and over again. He refuses point blank to learn any sign language, even when we see later on towards the end of his relationship with HW, he has not moved a millimeter to meet this kid halfway in terms of communicating with him. There is no attempt at any kind of physical nurture apart from hugs, which are not hugs, they are grabbing and, and like, clinging on. And again, it just emphasises the fact that Daniel, it, he cannot see outside his own head. And in his own head, the way you communicate with people is speaking in this Agent Smith meets Tony the Tiger voice. Because that's the thing that's always sold him. This is the, the con man persona, it's the voice that does it. If he can't use that voice... The snake oil voice, he's got nothing. Notice at the beginning he was entirely on his own because he had no means to command people. He yeah. needed the silver and the gold first, then they'd listen to him, and then he gets a suit on. But he thinks it's because of him. He thinks it's because of the voice, because of his speeches, because mm. of everything. No, it's the, it's the wealth that has already started to accumulate around him, and that is the only thing that he's really got going for him at this stage. Do you remember the soap bar beating in Full Metal Jacket on yes. poor Lawrence, Vincent D'Onofrio's character? That's what this ear inspection reminds me of. After uh, a night of sleeping without uh, hearing, uh, the boy is woken up as Daniel grabs and wrestles him to the side of the bed and a doctor runs in uh, like, like it's a speed ear inspection and like thrusts this ear observing device into one ear and goes, yeah, 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 good, good, good. And then to the other ear, yeah, that's very good. And then runs away and it's like, what the fuck was that supposed to be? Mm. Was that to assess whether this kid is deaf or not? Or yeah, basically it was just to look to see if his eardrums were intact, which obviously they're not. But but the the but like the, it, the way it's done is is almost like 
Clearly you're faking. The only way I can be sure is to sneak this up on you. It's not, no, no, no. It's not about finding out whether he's faking. It's about finding out whether he can get better. Right. It's it's about examining to see whether this is likely to be something permanent or whether this is something that will improve. But the what, what one the thing, manner that it's done specifically yeah, is so baffling say. and unexplained that like it, it it's to illustrate that he ha- doesn't have the, even the tiniest amount. Again, it's with the communication of just saying sit on the bed, like you know, just like sit here. He's going to look in your yeah. ears. Show him the device. Yeah. Point to his ears. It's not hard, people, but, but that, ultimately... But he won't make this, that even that tiny step. Everything's got to be invasive and violent. This is not just about Daniel's personality, though. This is the medical profession mm. at this point in history, and frankly, a good chunk of it still now. Attempts to communicate with people who can't grasp simple speech... Just the lack of any kind of trying to overcome that in some people... I'm running out of words at this point because it is so baffling to me and so frustrating to me to see it happen over and over again. People who get put in institutions because the the perception of how they interact with the world is they don't understand anything that's going on. It doesn't matter if you shut them in a room for 23 hours a day. They're not going to care. And then you bring those people out of those rooms and give them an opportunity to engage in a way that makes sense to them. And my God, the transformation is incredible. The word we're looking for is inhumanity. That's and the one. it is something that I have said repeatedly is not exclusive to humans. Chimps have it. Dogs have it. People like an animal can tell when you're stressed and will be compassionate. Not all animals by any means. There is a way of shutting yourself off from that as a human or never learning that and being something less than a person, less than a dog, certainly less than a golden retriever. Mm. Eli hangs back on Daniel's leg and uh, starts mewling about his church and Daniel hits the fucking roof and starts shoving him into mud and, and, and shouting, I'll bury you underground, Eli. He's angry that this guy who claims to be a healer can't actually heal his broken child, who was useful to him. Mm. Which is, in, in honesty, is not something that Daniel really expects, but it is frustrating to him at this point that the only things that Eli is capable of doing are useless to him. Again, it's that narcissism coming back out. If you are not helpful to me, you are nothing. Aren't you a healer? And a vessel for the Holy Spirit? When are you coming over and make my son here again? Can't you do that? Oh, you owe the church of the third revelation. Five thousand dollars. Oh, 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 oh. I'm gonna bury you underground. Oh, oh. I'm gonna bury you underground. The next part in this saga involves his brother, Henry Plainview. And I'm using big inverted commas. <laughs> I've done everywhere I've written Henry in my Henry notes Plainview. since speech marks. Played by Kevin J. O'Connor, almost chameleonic in this role. He was Benny in The Mummy. Uh, big uh, fan of uh, Stephen Summers and Stephen Summers of He. They work together a lot. He's like his... Uh, Clint Howard to Ron Howard, or his De Niro to Scorsese. Or Bill Paxton to Mm. James Cameron. Yeah, so he was, it is better to be by the side of the devil than in his path. Which is evidenced here. Yeah. (laughs) 
Listen to Johnny Greenwood's score again here, from a nervous rumbling and noodling as Daniel befuddles the town with words. But now it's stripped back to the uncertainty of the overture and this painful spike of strings coming up, achieved by the orchestra just holding their bows and just grinding slowly. was absolutely emulated one year later by Hans Zimmer in The Dark Knight. Honestly, it reminds me most of Stravinsky. Here, Henry, plain view, uh, turns up at his house and tells him, uh, you know, brother from another mother, and, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in our father's house and I never knew you and I'm sorry, but uh, I'm here now. I, I heard about your well. And Daniel, surprisingly, rather than going, this sounds a bit fishy, really takes to this idea. He's almost happy. I never even knew he had teeth. And again, this emphasizes how desperate he is for blood, this kind of blood, mm. the blood that to him means a connection. And here we have truth time number one of two. There are two moments in this film where Daniel is in too truthful a mood and he confides in his blood here while they're sat by the fire. They've gotten to know each other a little bit, but here he actually, like we don't really know Daniel Plainview, we only know him by his actions, but we don't know the depths to which he'll sink. We don't know how sick he is until he starts talking about himself to Henry. I worked for Geological Survey and uh, went to Kansas. I couldn't stay there, just couldn't. I don't like to explain myself. Are you an angry man, Henry? About what? Are you envious? Do you get envious? I don't think so, no. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. That part of me is gone. Working and not succeeding. All my uh, failures has left me. Uh, I just don't care. Well, if it's in me, it's in you. Times when I I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone. I see the worst in people, Henry. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. Built up my hatreds over the years, little by little. 
Having you here gives me a second breath. I, I can't keep doing this on my own. With these um, people. This is him expressing in confused words an estimation of himself that he doesn't feel like a person, doesn't feel human. He lacks that golden retriever aspect that, uh, that we would refer to as humanity. Yeah. It's very easy to get bogged down with misanthropy, to look at people and hate what they do and feel apart from them. Daniel has allowed that feeling to consume him. And examining that from the outside and making absolutely no efforts to address it is where the root of all his problems lie. Especially as this conversation is effectively let's be inhuman monsters together. Bros before humans. The other part of this is that he is self, I can't really call it reflective. He is he is being honest about how he thinks he feels at this point, but he is not really able to reflect on any of that to come to any useful conclusions. And the biggest clue of how early days he is in terms of actually examining his own character is when he says, I want to be wealthy enough that I can get, get away, away from, from all everybody. these people. Dude, you bought a quail farm. Or like quail land. Yeah. You know what you could have done at that point? Set up Take a small HW, house. Set up a small holding. Mm. You're well away from everybody. This is what you claim you want. But this is the, uh, the same speech he gives where he talks about the house that was near the house that they ostensibly both grew up in. It was a really nice place that he wanted to live in and eat in. But now if he had that place, he'd probably uh, was feel sick to, to think of it. This is like, you know, if, you know, I am a millionaire. If I had to live in a thousand heirs house, I'd kill myself. Mm. It's his grand estimation of himself means that he'd have to have an absolutely palatial home. Exactly. And to this bury is, himself This in. is where that vampiric tendency shows itself. He will never have enough. And this is the thing. When you pursue wealth, when you pursue power, the cup you are trying to fill, fill has, has no, no bottom. bottom. I was going to go there as well. But that character in Kung Fu Panda 2 is more pitiable than this one. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, just to back that up, the idea of, of you had an opportunity to retreat, which is what you claim you want, he is, a little bit further down the line, offered more than ample money to do precisely what he says he wants to do, and he says no. In fact, he gets really violent. Absolutely. So, no, Daniel, that is not what you want. Go deeper. <laughs> he does go deeper, unfortunately. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> direction <laughs> you misunderstood me you weren't listening indeed <laughs> he starts at the beginning in total isolation he had that absence of people around him he was he was never more lonely and solitary than in that shaft on his own mm. poor as a church mouse you can be poor enough to not have anybody around you as well mm. okay the boy discovers a diary whose diary was it was it it's henry's it is okay. henry's diary right the boy discovers Henry's diary. Henry without speech marks. H.W. reads up on uh, who uh, this man is, or was, 
and decides very intuitively that Daniel has drugged him with... And he puts whiskey in his milk. Whiskey-filled milk to try to get him to sleep, which harks back to one of their first ever interactions where Daniel was like, I don't know, what are babies like, hard liquor? So that he can go out with this new guy and, uh, you know, develop a new bond with someone that he, uh, you know, wants to pass on everything to. Effectively, a major competition for HW. Which, this is the only time in his life that he actually behaves in petulant, destructive fashion the way that his father does. And yeah, of course and his father does this is what I mean about, about this, is the, this is one of the very few elements that he seems to have taken from Daniel. <laughs> it is exacerbated by that early teenage, impulsive hyper-emotion, and of course, because Daniel won't communicate with him, there is nobody to help him channel any of that. As far as Daniel's concerned, blood is thicker than water. He's got his real brother here, and, uh, you know, he doesn't need this bastard from a basket, so he sends him away for setting the house on fire, which... Technically, I mean, you set the house on fire, kid. You at least need to be talked to by someone who's prepared to talk to you. Correct. Um, the... He doesn't... It's not the house he's trying to set on fire. It is Henry he is trying to set on fire. He sets fire to his bed. Right. Um, but yeah, the, ultimately, this is the this is the cry for help from HW. This is the I desperately need yeah. support that you are not giving me. I have a mouth but cannot scream. I have to get it somehow. And in a way, sending him away while the manner in which he does it, again, is this whole, just fucking talk to your kid. Find some way to communicate the truth to him rather than just dumping him on a train and running away like a petulant child. They're set on a train to go to New York or something. Yeah, he's, he has somehow like communicated to HW that they are going on a trip. And then he's like, you wait here. And like doesn't I, I just gesture with my hand you because I'm are physically expressive more than he does. Yeah, he just gets up like, and sort of again turns away from him and kind of mumbles, "I'm going to go and talk to the guard." Or something. Okay, I will express to you the message he gives his son at this point, folks. Everybody ready? Because you are now deaf. Hw. Did you get it? <laughs> Then, as the train starts moving and H.W. sees his father walking along the side of the train, practically tapping his heels at that point, like, oh, I've gotten rid of the kid. H.W. Um, <laughs> uh, freaks out because he loves this guy. Well, it's just the fact that he's been left. It, has anybody ever had that feeling of being, on a, chi- being a child and suddenly realising mm. that you are alone on the wrong bus he's, or something like that? He's got Kieran Hines to look after him. But he didn't know. At He's... that point, it's not until he tries to jump off the train that Kieran Hines comes and grabs him. And again, grabbing, he's not, I mean, his holding of HW does at least seem fractionally more affectionate mm. and, and, and sort of this is for your own protection, kid, than anything Daniel's ever done for him. But still, it's, it's that, that sense of abandonment, loss, distress and nobody to really help him funnel it. Mm. Uh, After this... Poor fucking kid. But again, this is probably the best thing Daniel could have done for him because what he gets out of this going away Mm. is so valuable to him. Distance. Education. Someone who gives a shit about him. Context. Shortly after this, and possibly feeling a twinge of 
guilt in something one might call a black little wisp of pus. <laughs> There's a small worm you could in the corner of his chest soul. flicking its tail. That's it. This is what I mean about the occasional shots of him being, uh, you know, fond of the baby and, uh, you know, enjoying time with his son. Like, I genuinely think there is... As you say, narcissistically, yeah, a way of sort of saying, you're like a little version of me. Yeah, the rejection is, you're not me anymore. Mm. I can't make you me anymore, therefore you're useless to me. You're not my blood, therefore you're useless to me. However, maybe it's more a case of, it's not so much that he misses the boy as he's grieving for the life he expected, which is that he could keep this yeah. boy uh, using him as a, this is my son, we're a family business, da-da-da-da-da, and having to get rid of him bodily so that he can then make it, me and my brother are going to be digging wells from now on, uh, has disturbed him. And I believe he even explicitly says later on, my image of you is dead, is, is gone, I can't get that back. Yeah. In doing another business deal, a man suggests... <laughs> I did a business... <laughs> A man suggests, go take care of your son. You know, leave the, the, the well here. Just, you know, you, you, the boy needs you. And it's a, an act of compassion. It is almost certainly a kind of a, you're also not a person we want to keep around here. And it's uh, Daniel immediately interprets it as uh, you're trying to get an your... An attack. It's a, it's a pushing him away. <clears throat> but it's, I, I think there's an element of, that, yes, there is compassion... Yes, there is, I'm looking for a way to get rid of you. There is also an element of, he thinks that Daniel's behaviour at this stage is because he's worried about his son and won't admit it. <clears throat> and therefore he is potentially dangerous to have around an oil site where you need to be focused. To which Daniel replies, I'll come to your house in the night and slit your throat. And the guy is what the fuck? He's like, don't tell me how to raise my son. Like, yeah, no, I, I, that, that I could understand. Just go back a little bit. I'll come to your house in the middle of the night and slit your throat. Yeah, thought so. Crazy town. We have left proportion far behind us, my friends. <laughs> yeah. Um... But Daniel at this point, and this, this is something that will grow in him. He is becoming more and more suspicious by the day. Paranoid, I believe, the is the word. Of people around him, yeah, who, who he doesn't want around him particularly. He is losing all sense of continuity and what little bit of safety and firm ground he had beneath him, he's just sent to New York on a train. Yeah, having to nurture something always kept, him, kept one toe in humanity for yeah. him. Again, that word. Build a pipeline, make a deal with Union Oil, be my guest. But if you can't pull it off, you've got an ocean of oil under your feet with nowhere to go. Why not turn it over to us? We'll make you rich. You spend time with your boy. It's a great discovery. Now let us help you. You just tell me how to run my family. It might be more important now that you've proven the field and we're offering to buy you out. One night I'm going to come to you inside of your house, wherever you're sleeping, and I'm going to cut your throat. What? What are you talking about? Have you gone you crazy, Daniel? I, I heard what you said. Why did you, you say don't it? tell me about my son. Why are you acting insane and threatening to cut my throat? You don't tell me about my son. I'm not telling you anything. I'm asking you to be reasonable. If I've offended you, I apologize. We'll see what I can do. Uh, around about this point, uh, in a a business frenzy, he uh, goes to find out 
Uh, why don't I own this little patch of ground? We'll call this patch X, shall we? Because it's a little bit of ground that's in the middle of all of this oil field that has been, that's owned by a man named... Uh, Bandy. This is the Bandy Tract. The Bandy Tract. So when he initially bought the uh, the land from the Sundays, this is Eli's parents, um, he went out and tried to buy up all the land surrounding it yeah. for exactly the reasons that we're going to find out soon. But there's this one tract of land owned by uh, this guy called Huge Bandy. tracts of land. And here's the thing. The reason that this is now the fly in Daniel's ointment, the sore thumb in his situation, is entirely his own fucking fault. When he was trying to buy up everybody's land, he did most of it through an intermediary. The real estate guy organised all the deals for him. But this one guy called Bandy is old and proud and wanted to see Daniel himself. But he is proud and will not sell to me. Exactly. And also, he's not a well man... And he wasn't really able to come and see Daniel. So he asked for Daniel to come and see him and discuss the potential purchase of his land. And, and Daniel, Daniel went, went nope. I have other things to be getting on with. I'm going to use FOMO and say and no. ignored Bandy completely. At the time, thinking this one strip of land is really not going to be all that relevant. It turns out this one strip of land is what he needs to put the pipeline through yep. in order to continue to maximise the profits from this oil field. So there's a tension that there's a bit that he can't have. Why don't I own this? Yeah. Why don't I own this? And that obviously is an element of it. But yeah, part of it is the pipeline. Part of it is just, I own everything from A to Z. Why is Y sat there mm. not being mine? And there's one scene in this movie where he sort of gets all the guys who are wearing, who've got mutton chops and grey hair and black dudes. And, uh, you know, they toast their success with branding. And it's like PT's gone. Yeah, okay, so there, there's that scene. We don't need to hammer that one home again. Back to Daniel on his own in solitary, paranoid craziness. Indeed, yeah. And his real estate guy even says to him, could you not go around the bandy tract? And Daniel goes, not really, no. There's mountains on it. <laughs> So Daniel's beginning to become more suspicious and paranoid, as uh, Sharon pointed out. And I put at this stage, he's becoming more monstrous. And I said it, it feels more like Ralph Steadman drew him, yeah. the guy who does, does the uh, Hunter S. Thompson imagery, that kind of like black ink just scribbled like a creature of a man. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, an animation sequence in Princess Kaguya, which we saw the other day, where she is overwhelmed by her own emotion and the animation devolves mm, into these the black and red scrawls. Yeah. And yes, this is what Daniel is starting to feel like now. Yeah. He starts to uh, become suspicious of uh, his brother Henry, who seems to be just asking him for money and hanging around with him and just sort of hanging on his coattails. And he wakes him up with a pistol in his face out in the countryside at night. Uh, with a direct question about the name of the house across the way from where they uh, the, were what, both apparently raised. What's triggered this is he he was he was not entirely unsuspicious of Henry before this, mm. uh, but it was more sort of okay. You might be my brother, but are you just around because I'm wealthy? Yeah. Um, 
But Henry I did... want you to be around because you love me. <laughs> Henry did some actual... You've got to earn that, dude. Um, Henry did some actual work in terms of, of showing him I can survive on my own. I've had a shit past, but I, if, if you want me to go, then that's fine. <laughs> really, if I'm going to be around you, I would like to work with you. And that's kind of the thing that convinces Daniel to let him stay. <laughs> but then they have a conversation reminiscing about their shared childhood if not overlapping then at least taking place geographically in the same area. identical and daniel makes a casual reference to um an event that took place in their village mm. that henry has no memory of he doesn't react to it at all he just kind of smiles that's a peach just, tree dance or something pe- yeah yeah and obviously that was the thing that all the teenage boys in that town did they mm. would take their girlfriends to the peach tree dance and Henry has like, no oh, yeah, recognition of this at all. The he fish under the sea dance. He doesn't that's the even one. twig that that is an important comment. Mm. And that's the thing that makes Daniel go, hang on a minute. Again, Kevin J. O'Connor's physical acting is so fantastic. They just sat on the beach and Kevin is like, sort of like, he's got his head in his hands in a kind of, I'm in over my head. This guy's a dangerous lunatic. Please <laughs> don't give anything away. It's okay. You got this, Henry. Uh, while uh, the, you know, chisel-faced Ralph Steadman drawn uh, Daniel's glaring at him wearing long winter underwear as bathing costumes. Yeah. Worth noting, by the way, uh, it, it is a fact at this point, Henry, that you've seen how this man reacts. Mm. Frankly, you should have cashed your chips and walked away long yeah, ago. Yeah, you should have gotten the fuck out of here. But either way, he asks him uh, this direct question and... Henry falls apart and admits that he's not actually his biological brother. He knew his biological brother. He learned about uh, Daniel for many weeks and months, uh, you know, working alongside a young man who actually really was his brother and then died of tuberculosis and then assumed the identity and came seeking an, e- an easy ride. He, awesome. didn't, he did not expect to be in quite so deep with somebody quite so frightening. Absolutely. And he took, so that he could Summersby Henry. Nice. Um, he took his diary, and therefore the diary that HW read that in, that, that sparked him to spark Henry's bed was He's a fire starter, that, twisted fire starter, yeah, that, that which you was, can't have around oil wells. Indeed. That was Henry's actual diary. Now, I did wonder, because there are also photographs in the diary, if there's a picture of Henry that obviously does not look like this guy who's turned up, yeah. it's possible that HW knew at least on some level no. what was going on. No, but he'd honestly, have tried to warn his father. Yeah, yeah I would think. You can't just, like, uh, to his mind... He read who Henry was and saw the photo and and was like, right, great. So you just you've just forced me to drink brandy and milk so that I'll sleep, and you're going to go out and make plans with this guy, which is accurate, mm, yeah. entirely accurate. Yeah. Uh, so uh, even though all Daniel has to say is get the fuck out of my life, he shoots Henry in the head with a small ball gun that just there's this horrible moment of just Henry. Sc- shrieking in pain just after he's been shot in the side of the head and then held down it's this he does that to Eli and he's like I'm bury you under the ground that kind of like like a a predator who's just holding this frightened gazelle or rabbit down that comes out in his hugs with HW Mm. it comes out in his fights with people there is there's not really 
until a certain point, there's not really a random violence in Daniel. It's not about the emotion getting away from him. What we're seeing is the emotion hitting the wall of his his external control. He's acting, we, we see it acting out on the person he's interacting with. He's holding them very tightly and still, or he's holding them down to the floor, or he's like pinning their arms down or something like that. It's not about hurting them. It's about control and restraint, not just of them, but of himself. He can't let that force get out. I want you to tell me something. <clears throat> what? What's the name of the farm next to the hill house? What was the name of the farm next to the hill house? I can't remember. Who are you? I'll leave, Daniel. Who are you? I'm Noah. Just let me get up and go. Do I have a brother? I met a man in King City. Who said he was your brother? We were friends for months, working in King City. And he wanted to make his way to your Daniel. We didn't have any money. He died of tuberculosis. He wasn't harmed wasn't killed, nothing bad. But he told me about you. And I just took his story. Used his diary. Daniel. Daniel. I'm your friend. I'm not trying to hurt you. Just survive. The times he commits violence are as a direct, almost exactly proximate result of something he could not control yes. happening to someone he actually does on some level potentially maybe not care about but attach himself and his identity to yeah. which in other words he doesn't love himself or love that person but he's so broken that they feel like a piece of him. Yeah, there's an importance to them that he recognises on some level, even if he has no word for that. When he try, you know, smacks Eli around and smashes him down into the into the ground, when he uh, uh, for not healing my son, it's as a direct result of my son is now deaf, and I am incredibly frustrated that I could not control this. And you, you Eli, who claim to be a healer, you cannot heal this boy. You're just as much of a charlatan as I am. When he shoots 
Henry, he is actually upset that the real Henry died of tuberculosis far, far away. It's already happened. There's nothing he can do about it. None of his money or power can bring this man back, can summon the thing that he thought was would anchor him to the world. He said himself he can't keep going the way he is. He wants to be able to do it as a twosome. He wants to be able to share this, and the, as far as he's concerned, it's his blood, so they'll be like him. Potentially because he looks at other people and no one's as broken as him. He doesn't see a match anywhere. Mm. He doesn't feel human. Mm. So he is actually filled with rage and sadness. That's what I believe draws him to murder this man he doesn't need to murder. He then buries him and walks away from it and no one ever asks whatever happened to Henry. Mm. He's this sad, pathetic nobody. We don't even know his name. Yeah. The, um, there's something I noticed a little bit later on as well. When he buries Henry, he uses the same method that the team later uses to lay the pipeline. Yeah, he, he opens a small trench the in the ground. And, but specifically, he digs the trench under Henry. Mm. And when they put the pipe down, they put the pipe down first, and then they dig the trench under the pipe. Ah, well noticed. And it, it just it emphasises that idea that everything is about um, practicalities to him. There's there's routines and ways of doing certain things that he doesn't he doesn't attach external emotional facets to them. A, a, a dead person is the same to him as an oil pipe. Yeah. He wakes up with Bandy just standing over him, the man he really, really needs to meet. Well, it's going to be really difficult to meet Bandy. <laughs> what? I'm going to bury the body of my dead brother, brother on the only bit of land in the immediate vicinity that I do not own. This here's Bandyland. Anyway, uh, Bandy says, okay, I'll lease you the land. Like, I'll still own it, but you can run a pipe through here. Yeah, yeah. Right? basically, you will you will pay me, I think they refer to it as an easement, you mm. will pay me rent so that you can run your pipe through this land. But to do that, you've got to confess your sins in front of the congregation. It's like he's found the thing that will piss Daniel off the most, Absolutely. apart from possibly dredging up HW. Yeah. So he forces him onto his knees... In this weird pre-arrangement, while in, in in the church, Eli dances around him, shrieking about being cleansed in the eyes of the Lord and slapping Daniel around, embarrassing him in front of absolutely everyone, forcing Daniel to lean super hard into the I've abandoned my child aspect of this. Yeah. And yeah. here's the thing. He actually feels he it to some it. degree. Yeah, and this is this is an element of the the evangelical church... What's the word? Exploiting? No, 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 no. It's it's in terms of why people are drawn to it. The whole sort of throwing yourself about and speaking in tongues and 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 sort of that that expression of emotions that you do not have words for. When you are provided with no opportunities to do that in your life at all, any hint of being able to release that control however manipulated and however unhelpful long term it ultimately feels you will cling to that the the ability to 
fall down on your knees and scream and cry when you are not allowed to do that at home, the opportunity to exhibit something of emotional truth when there is no one else in your life to hear that, you will cling to that. I believe you're explaining why hysteria was something that happened to Victorian women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the men were like, we don't understand this. Slap her quickly and throw her on a chaise long. Yeah. And that that goes way back as well. The whole, the, the idea of the main ads and that when women are allowed to even fractionally release their emotional internal um, uh, pressure, that they will, they will go completely insane and race through the forest tearing people apart. Um, suggestion, how about you don't repress it in the first place and then maybe that wouldn't happen? <sighs> Society, you and I need to have a talk. Yes, uh, we do. Okay. What do you want me to say? Oh, Daniel, you've come here and you've brought good and wealth, but you have also brought your bad habits as a backslider. You've lusted after women and you have abandoned your child. Your child that you raised, you have abandoned all because he was sick and you have sinned. So say it now. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Say it louder. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Louder, Daniel. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I am sorry, Lord. I am sorry, Lord. I want the blood. I want the blood. You have abandoned your child. I've abandoned my child. I will never backslide. I will never backslide. I was lost, but now I am found. I was lost, but now I'm found. I have abandoned my child. Say it, say it. I've abandoned my child. Say it louder, say it louder. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. Beg for the blood. Give me the blood, Lord, and let me get away. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Get out of here, devil! Out, devil! Out, sin! Do you you accept the church of the third revelation as your spiritual guide? Get out of here! Get out of here! Get out of here! Jesus Christ as your savior. Yes, I do. He brings back HW to continue with his plan A. And obviously he's feeling kind of a, there's a relief that the boy's here, but he's also extremely pissed off about the loss of the, now he's grieving over the loss of the brother that yeah. he uh, thought he had and then got snatched away from him. Absolutely. HW is clearly a, what he considers to be a poor second. <laughs> to the, the actual blood brother that he almost had, but he has learned nothing about communication. He does exactly the same thing as before. He grabs HW's hand, drags him along to show him the pipeline, and he's happily nattering along to him while the kid's behind him. Okay, it's like, mm, mm, it's, a, it's a pipe. <laughs> Um, one assumes oil is going to be coming through here. Cool. Indeed. But this is where we see the first evidence of what HW has gained from this trip away. And that is a teacher uh, who will eventually become his interpreter, who clearly cares about this boy a great deal. Yeah. Uh, before that happens, while they're in the restaurant and he's ordered steaks and goat's milk, 
This is the last vestige of Daniel being able to deal with the very business sharks that he's supposed to be dealing with. While he's at the table with H.W., the man who told him to look after his boy comes in with a bunch of other businessmen. They sit at the table talking to one another softly and they're aware that Daniel's there. And Dan it's one of those long, uncomfortable shots of Daniel Day-Lewis glaring. You're like, something bad's gonna happen, something bad's gonna happen. And people are talking and it's like, okay, so what, what are you doing, what are you doing? And then he puts a napkin over his face and starts, it's lunacy, starts talking about pipelines and then whips off the napkin to see who had been turning and watching this nut job talking to himself because the kid's like, I can't hear a word of this. I was a bit baffled by this whole thing because is his purpose in putting the napkin over his face so that HW can't read his lips and doesn't know what he's saying? Hmm. Or is it, is it that he's doing that thing where if I can't see you, you can't see me. And this is him hiding. I interpret it as like saying, everybody look at me. Like he's doing, like he's not doing it in an I'll be clever. Mm. Like I'll close my eyes and then I'll open them because that's how you do it surreptitiously. He is going out of his way to be like, and I remove the veil and you're looking at me, listening to my plans. Gotcha, okay. It's a very ostentatious theatrical man going crazy mm. and then he goes up to the uh he stands up and walks over aggressively to the man who was doing fuck all and then starts other than doing well in his business says, interest there's my boy there's the boy you should uh, said i should look uh, after i want you to look over there daniel let me introduce. look over there you see that's my son you see him yes you see him? i see him don't tell me how to raise my family. I told you not to tell me how to raise my family. Daniel. So what do you see? I'm very happy for you that... Yes, I made a deal with Union. My son is happy. He's safe. Congratulations. I'm taking care of him now, so... Excellent. You look like a fool, don't you, Tilford? Excuse me, gentlemen. Excuse him, gentlemen. I told you what I was going to do. He's in Howard Hughes territory by this point. Oh, there's a lot of Hughes in the, there. Yeah, that is about to explode off the page. Scorsese went easy on Howard Hughes in his biopic, The Aviator. Which, by the way, has a fantastic turn from Kate Blanchett playing Catherine Hepburn. Women sweat and you're bad at golf. But like I said, this is the, the, the last shred of being able to relate to people. At this stage, 12, 13 years pass and H.W. builds himself. He begin, you know, we, we see him with this teacher learning to speak and we get Mary back. Remember the little girl I mentioned before that H.W. had already struck a chord with and they'd uh, uh, been friends for quite a while. And Mary gladly learns sign language as well to communicate with him. And then we almost immediately cut to a now adult Mary in a bridal gown 
delivering her vows in sign in this beautiful, lovely ceremony where he's all... The, the, it, the boy has grown into someone loving and caring and surrounded himself with people who feel that way. He lives a quiet existence. Meanwhile, Daniel Plainview sits in his mansion shooting garbage. <laughs> what can I do to entertain myself today? I know, I'll shoot my piano. Yeah, he seethes in bitter solitude, having achieved his every aim. Yep. You know when I said before that he has become the man that he wanted to be? He wasn't yet the man he wanted to be. Now he's the man he wants to be. Spectacularly wealthy and powerful, completely alone, and he hates his existence. Absolutely. Absolutely. He wanted to be away from everyone else. Well, congratulations, Daniel. You have it. He's visited by H.W. and his good friend, the teacher and translator, who extends warmth and love. H.W. is starting his own company in Mexico so that he can recapture what he enjoyed about his childhood. He actually looks back on those years fondly. Yeah, yeah. And he expresses... I, I'm, I'm going to do this on my own. I want you to be my father, not my business partner. And the amount of leeway, benefit of the doubt, and kindness extended to this ghoul yeah. by this decent chap. Yeah, he even makes it really clear, I'm asking you to, like, the, the business partnership that we have... Can I take my money out of that so that I can go and start my own company? But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. I understand. I will go and do it from my, on my own and I will build it up from the ground. But as Daniel said, I have a competition in me. It's specifically not that he has to succeed. He hates to see anybody Anyone else, else succeed. succeed. Because how will he know? And just think, folks... Who else can we think of to whom this might apply? How will he know that he is the best unless everybody else in his field is failing? Okay, answers on a postcard, folks. Mm. Um, just a small point. I read this morning that the richest men in the world lost $1.4 trillion last year combined. I read that the richest 10 men in the world gained $1 trillion. During the pandemic? Dur Right. But because all of their companies depended very much on people being at home and not being able to do anything, they're probably around about a bit more well-off than they were before then. But because they gained so much during lockdowns, it looks like, on paper, that they have lost... One assumes oh, they... But if you have a trillion dollars, you invest it. You don't just put it in a mattress. Well, yeah, but what you invest it in loses value overnight. That money is gone. I know nothing about finances. I know. Okay. Let's keep it that way. Russell. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that sounded awful. Like I'm holding you hostage and managing all your money. For I you. know how to do the spreadsheets. <laughs> She's laughing because it's true. Russell Harvard plays uh, the uh, man version of H.W. Plainview and Dylan Frazier as young H.W. Plainview. These are, uh, see, you said they, they're the MVPs. I completely agree in terms of we need these as an audience, we need a little spot of light in this black, black sump of oil and blood to be able to cling to and go, there is some humanity, felinity, golden retrieverishness. Mm. Basically, without H.W. as a character, we would have no glimpse 
of what Daniel could potentially have. But Russell Harvard's got, what, four or five minutes on screen as the uh, older uh, HW, and he does a fantastic job of completely conveying to us that he is the boy we've spent a long time with. Mm. And he's compassionate in a way that it's almost like a speaking actor would have trouble conveying this, but because he's doing it through sign, it feels more believable. Like, mm. if you got... Who's the greatest young actor? Ryan Gosling. No, wait, wait. Timothy Chalamet, the boy. To actually say these things, you'd be like, bullshit, Ryan, you don't care about this guy. Timothy, you're telling porky pies. Mm. How could anybody? But somehow, Russell Harvard convinced me. Yeah. But he also, he has a couple of spoken lines here because eventually Daniel insists on mm. hearing his voice rather than the translator's. Yes. And that conviction that he was exhibiting through his gestures and his sign language is then equally there in his voice, which is wonderful. And this is uh, truth time number two, when Daniel says, and I believe that this is the truth as he sees it, without acknowledging the elements that conflict within himself, that he never loved the boy, the boy was a tool for him, a bastard from a basket. I'm going to Mexico with my wife. I'm going away from you. That wasn't so hard, was it? Killing us with what you're doing. You're killing my image of you as my son. You are stubborn. You won't listen. You're not my son. Please don't say that. I know you don't mean it. Well, it's the truth. You're not my son. You never have been. You're no... You're no... Orphan. Did you ever hear that word? Tell him what I said. You operated here today like one. Should have seen this coming. I should have known that under this all these past years you've been building your hate for me piece by piece. I don't even know who you are because you have none of me in you. You're someone else's. This anger, your maliciousness, backwards dealings with me. You're an orphan from a basket in the middle of the desert. And I took you for no other reason than I needed a sweet face to buy land. Did you get that? No, now you know. You have none of me in you. You're just bastard from a basket. I thank God I have none of you in me. Not my son. Piece of competition. Basket from a basket. Basket from a basket. 
he was selling the child mm. as he was buying the land. Yeah, he was using him as a way to convince. And, and we know that he was a liar when he said, I'm a family man and this is the thing that's important to me. Mm. No, it's not, Daniel. We know it's not. But we can see by your actions. You, you're right. This is, the, this is the truth as he needs it to be right now. Mm. And he does it to effectively cut ties with the uh, boy and say, good, f- fuck off, fuck off to Mexico then, fine. I don't love you and I never did. <laughs> the emotionally cut off version. And then he staggers around the house completely alone, obliterating himself with alcohol. And it's like, this is again why I feel like there's somewhere deep down. Again, I don't actually consider it to be love. In the same way that I don't consider what Thanos felt for Gamora to be love. I feel like... In the same way, he had, he took a piece of himself and he put it in this vessel like a horcrux. Yeah. And he went, you were a piece of me and now this piece of me is going? Well, fuck you, you were never a piece of me. Here's an equivalent. When the eye first started to evolve in single-celled creatures that, that did not at that time have any way of detecting changes between light and dark, all it was was a, a, a pit of sensors that could recognise when it was light, when it was no longer light, and when shadow passed over the creature. They'd have a job in England right now. Well, yes, indeed. (laughs) It's dark or it's dingy. Yeah. But that, to me, is the comparison between what Daniel feels about people who have this sort of slight connection to him and what we would call love or affection. (laughs) He's like a Terminator. Yeah, it's it's so incredibly simplistic. And it is just a, a, a case of, I feel <clears throat> something, I feel an absence of something. I feel the threat that the something I feel is going to go away. That's what it breaks down to. Like you said, it's, it's not what we would necessarily recognise as what the word love goes with, but it's the beginning sensory pit of that emotion. So he's removed his uh, first son and then Eli comes to see him so that he can remove his second son. Again, I believe that this violent outburst is motivated by the prior dismissal. Absolutely. And that that dismissal, by the way, this is the power of three on him abandoning HW. He abandons him at the oil rig when he first gets his injury. Then he abandons him on On the the train. train. And now he abandons him again in the sense that he pushes him away from him. And when Eli comes to see Daniel, I would put it at approximately 1929, coinciding with the stock market crash. There's a sick desperation in Eli's face. Things have changed for him. And now really, really, really needs that five grand for the church. And this is what I mean about Eli's uh, desire for the the recognition and the popularity and the the adoration of people that that he got from running his congregation he's gone off to Hollywood and made friends with people in society and he even refers to and this is quite subtle um, and I may be reading it wrong but he suggests that Bandy's grandson um, has gone off to be an actor Eli has gone with him and potentially ended up developing a little bit of a relationship with him. And this is how he now has the leverage to be able to make the offer that he is about to make to Daniel. So me and Bandy Jr. Jr. uh, can now offer you the full purchase of 
Land X. Yeah, Bandy's now died. Mm. His grandson is a Hollywood actor and doesn't need it. Mm. So, would you like it? And this is when we get like the 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 the, the most infamous speech from this is the "I drink your milkshake." So I'm not going to repeat it. That's definitely going in right here. We've seen ups and downs, haven't we? Are things down for you right now, Eli? No. No. Uh, I'm asking if you'd like to have business with the Church of the Third Revelation in developing this lease on Young Bandy's thousand-acre tract. I'm offering you to drill on one of the great undeveloped fields of Little Boston. I'd be happy to work with you. Yes, of course, that's wonderful. But there is one condition for this work. All right. I'd like you to tell me that you were a false prophet. I'd like you to tell me that you are and have been a false prophet. And that God is a superstition. It's a lie. It's a lie. I cannot say it. When can we begin to drill? Very soon. How long will it take to bring in the well? It shouldn't take long. I would like a $100,000 signing bonus plus the five that is owed to me with interest. That's only fair. prophet and God is a superstition if that's what you believe then I will say it say it like you mean it Daniel say it like it's your sermon I am a false prophet God is a superstition Why don't you stand up <clears throat> put your glass down I am a false prophet God is a super. Eli, Eli, stop. Just imagine this is your church here, and uh, you have a full congregation, so. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Say it again. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. I can't hear you at the back. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Say it again. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Those areas have been drilled. This is where the big hoodwink, the big uh, con job, is laid bare. From the beginning, he paid off Eli's brother Paul, who went off mercifully and never troubled Daniel again with the 10,000 he was given as a, a finder's fee for there's oil on our land. Did start his own oil company, but clearly hasn't been registered as a competitor mm. by uh, Daniel because whatever he's doing, it's so far away it doesn't matter. It, might, it would have been a banishment. Like, you know, you go, you dig your oil over there. I'll keep an eye on you so that you don't get too big. And then I might come and bury you underground. The pipeline laid through the bandy tract was there, effectively getting all of the oil anyway. So the actual land itself doesn't have any value to him. He's got the thing he wanted from it. This is the, the vampire side of it again. He's drained 
burned the land dry. Well, ultimately, the the because the pipeline was carrying the oil out of the field. Yeah. But the point is that the oil that was underneath all of these these um, stretches of land is was connected is in a vast pool. underground it's an lake underground of oil reservoir. and it ocean. It doesn't really matter where you're drawing that oil up. You're drawing from the same pool. This is something that Eli has no comprehension of whatsoever because he has no interest in or understanding of the practicalities of oil drilling. I could draw you land and then underneath that a giant oil lake and just like there, there and there's the bandit tract in the middle. Do you see, Eli? Like, just that. It's been 15 years, Eli. You, ne you never just sat down and drew this for yourself. Then, in the same way that he doesn't have to do anything else other than to simply crow in Eli's face and dismiss him, he murders Eli. But it's not out of seeming direct frustration and anger that Eli couldn't be the thing he wanted him to be the way he is with Henry. Here it seems more like a triumphant murder. Yeah. Like, I have won in such totality, I am now going to kill you. Yeah, there is an element of disappointment. It's almost like a victory lap. Yeah, and, and part, but part of it is driven by the fact that Eli, A, keeps saying we're brothers, we're brothers, and, it, and Daniel is, is trying to reject that. B that Eli has turned into such a pleading mess of, of patheticness that Daniel is trying to disassociate himself from, from any weakness that, that is exhibited there. Mm. Um, but also it is a, a culmination of all of those moments that I said about where he's, he's trying to control someone else, but also it's a wall of resistance trying to keep his own emotions mm. in check. This is the point where the dam breaks yeah. and it all comes out. This this beating to death of Eli, which is obscenely quick. With a bowling pin. Yeah. It, it takes three strokes and he's done. But it is every moment of anger, resentment, frustration that Daniel has felt since he fell down that pit and broke his leg in the first scene. Yeah. And also, um, one more thing about Eli being ignorant of the, the way that the oil reservoir works. He knows how that shit works. He says to Daniel when they first turn up on the land about the salt water. Whenever you drill a well, you get salt water. So he knows perfectly well on some level that when you go down underground, it's all connected. But he can't make that connection and, and draw that conclusion for himself. He has to have it outlined for him. Mm. And there's a single camera move here, which P.T. is a fan of, and you'll find it in every one of his films. And he held off on it in this. It's much more steady. And it's much more personal and stuck in the face of Daniel Day-Lewis's, like, glower. It's difficult to describe, but it is effectively, if you can imagine looking down a bowling alley and then the camera moves forward as the characters move forward with the camera. Daniel grabs Eli and throws him down the bowling alley and the camera jumps up behind to, to, to give us that dynamic motion. It's like a ratchet forward or something. The next time you see a PT film, just look out for that. It's It, it feels like his signature in the same way, because I don't think I've, I've seen anyone else do it in exactly the same way. And if they do, they're doing PT Anderson, who must be doing some previous director that I'm not aware of. In the same way that Mike Flanagan did not 
invent what I refer to as the Flanagan, which is where the camera starts on its side and then moves upwards or vice versa and just has that 90 degree to potentially 180 degree radial geometric travel. They didn't invent it, but like I, I love the idea that filmmakers can kind of have one little signature, one little flourish that you're like, it's almost like signing your name at the bottom. This particular move though, that, that ratcheting camera, it thinking of the other times he's used that, and there's one in particular that springs to mind in uh, Boogie Nights, it signifies a breaking through of a wall. Like the the, the world is shifting yeah. and nothing is ever going to be the same again. You're being drawn into the screen. The way that music picks you up and emotionally sweeps you through a scene, it's doing that visually. There are no Derricks there. This is uh, the bandy track. Do you understand? Do you understand, Eliya? That's more to the point. Do you understand? I drink your water. I drink it up. Every day, I drink the blood of lamb from Bandit's tract. I'm, I'm in desperate times. I know. I need a friend. Yes, of course you do. I'm sin. I need help. I'm a sinner. I've let the devil grab hold of me in ways I never imagined. I'm so full of sin. The Lord sometimes challenges us, doesn't he, Lord? Oh, yes, he does. Yes, he Daniel, does. yes, he does. Yes, he does. Oh. <laughs> he completely failed to alert me to the recent panic in our economy. And this, I, I, I must have this, Daniel, I must. I must, I must, I must, I must have this. My investments have. Daniel, I won't bore you, but if I could grab the Lord's hand for help, I would. But he does these things all the time, these mysteries that he presents and while we wait. While we wait for his word. But you're not the chosen brother, Eli. It was Paul who was chosen. Who was nursing you, poor Eli? One of Bandit's sounds. That land has been had. Nothing you can do about it. It's gone. It's had. If you would just you take this lease, Daniel. Train it. Train it, Eli, you boy. Drain drop. I'm so sorry. If you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw. There it is. That's a straw, you see. Watching. And my straw reaches across the room. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Don't bully me, Daniel. <laughs> Your song and dance and your superstition would help you, Eli. I am the third revelation. I am who the Lord has chosen. The School of Movies is a fool's way to invest one's capital. You put in money and out comes art. And then who profits from that? 
Nobody. Now, my new crypto mine has been opened up in Silicon Valley, and those who go in on the ground floor are liable to find themselves very much more well off. So this is a timed offer extended to those potential investors, because the non-fungible oil won't be there for the taking forever. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Shisham, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. I will give you time to reflect upon your investments. And ask yourself, and ask yourself, is more School of Movies what you really want? Now, what I'm going to do is actually read you the brief synopsis of Oil. Remember that? That I mentioned by Upton Sinclair? Just so that we can examine the differences. Now that we've got to the end of There Will Be Blood, because uh, his butler comes down and finds him hunched over the corpse of... kneeling on the ground over the uh, corpse of Eli. And he says... This is why I feel like this is a joyful triumph moment of just this cathartic violence for him. He says simply an announcement, I'm finished. As you said, like all of that frustration got poured out in one go. But it is also, I'm, I'm finished. finished. I am wrecked. This is the stage at which my life is going to fall apart from underneath yeah. me. There's, there's nothing more here. I have risen to the highest possible peak and I have killed again. Yes. Finally defeating my lifelong enemy, James Arnold Ross, or Dad, and his son James Jr., or Bunny, are introduced as they drive through Southern California to meet with the Watkins family who are leasing out some oil property they own. They find out that the family is deadlocked about how the properties and proceeds should be divided. While Dad and Bunny go quail hunting on the Watkins goat ranch, they find oil. So they weren't told about it, they just mysteriously find it. At Bunny's urging, Dad tries to prevent the elder Watkins from beating his daughter Ruth. So that was retained. Trying to convince them that he has received a third revelation. Oh, while he's chasing Eli around the bowling alley, he's screaming, I am the third revelation! I am the third revelation! I am who the Lord has chosen! Uh, he's received a third revelation which prohibits parents from beating their children. That's a good revelation. The plan backfires when Eli, Ruth's brother, interjects himself into the discussion and claims that he has received the revelation. I can receive revelations too, but better than Kyle. <laughs> As drilling begins on the Watkins ranch, Bunny begins to realise that his father's business methods are not entirely ethical. After a worker is killed in an accident and an oil well is destroyed in a blowout, Dad's workforce goes on strike. Bunny is torn between loyalty to Dad and his friendship to Ruth and her rebellious brother Paul, who support the workers. Paul is drafted into World War One. that wasn't in this, and when the conflict is over, remains in Siberia to fight the rising Bolsheviks. Back home, Bunny enrolls in college and he becomes increasingly involved with socialism through a classmate, Rachel Menzies. Paul returns home and tells of his travels, explaining that he has become a communist. 
Bunny accompanies Dad to the seaside mansion of his business associate, Vernon Roscoe. Dad and Roscoe flee the country to avoid being subpoenaed by Congress in the Teapot Dome scandal. Before Dad goes away, Bunny proposes parting ways with his father and earning his own way in the world. Dad is confused and hurt, but not unsupportive. Overseas, Dad meets and marries Mrs. Olivia, a widow and spiritualist, but soon passes away from pneumonia. Bunny decides to dedicate his life and inheritance to social justice while Roscoe moves to get control of the bulk of Dad's estate. Bunny and his sister Bertie are swindled out of most of their inheritance by Roscoe and Mrs. Olivia. Bunny marries Rachel and they dedicate themselves to establishing a socialist institution of learning. Eli, by now a successful evangelist, falsely claims that Paul underwent a deathbed conversion to Christianity. The end. That's a rather different story. It is, yeah. But I think the, some of the themes are evident. Yeah, but do you, uh, what does this remind you of? Remember it was written in 1927. This film was written 80 years after the book. Socialism did not win the war for America's soul. At least it hasn't yet, fingers crossed for an 11th hour Hail Mary. Ergo, P.T.'s take is far darker and more ruinous, in much the same way that It's a Wonderful Life could not be made the same way now, we have the cold iron benefit of hindsight at the black heart of capitalism. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And I'm, I'm finished. finished.